Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study and for the graciousness of your kingdom and character. We ask that you enlighten our minds and your spirit will join us here today, that we can come closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I want to start by thanking Mary Lou, and I hope I say the last name correctly, Resendez, uh, an online listener who helped me uncover this week an idea that I've held for years, which has turned out to be incorrect. We talked about this beforehand, didn't we? Yes, we did. In Lesson 8, on the quarterly, uh, we talked about the gift of tongues at Pentecost, and I suggested or said that the gift of tongues was a gift where the people heard everybody speak in their own language, um, but this was not right. The gift instead was a movement where the Spirit moved upon the disciples, where they were gifted with the ability to speak new languages, and that's why they were in different groups speaking in different languages, so when strangers came in, it sounded like, to them, drunkenness was going on, because they had all these little conversations going on to different groups in their own language. And um, I want to thank Mary Lou for helping clarify that. I also checked this. This is one of those ideas, I'm not sure where I picked up that way of viewing it, but I didn't question it, and I didn't research it. So this is one of those places I went and checked some sources, and that is actually correct. Um, This is a good example of how each of us have beliefs that we form throughout our lives, that may not be entirely accurate, and I constantly seek to try to update those beliefs and replace them with more accurate ones. So lesson uh, number 11 this week is the Holy Spirit and spirituality, grieving and resisting the Spirit. And the first paragraph says, The Holy Spirit has the unique ability to lead sinners to an awareness of their true sinful state. He also awakens in us a desire to accept Jesus, and he forgives us our sins. Excuse me. Let me read that again. He also awakens in us a desire to accept Jesus and his forgiveness for our sins. The Holy Spirit possesses a matchless power to make us overcomers and to enable us to reflect the beautiful character of Jesus. Now, I don't think there's anything specifically wrong with this passage at all. Anybody have any questions as you read it? Did you, was it completely clear? You go, oh, that makes perfect sense. I understand exactly what they mean. If the three are equal, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, can the Holy Spirit not forgive sins? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. And I was going to ask, did you notice the language they chose suggests a subtle little idea in there? Uh, he awakens, this is the language, he also awakens in us the desire to accept Jesus and his, i.e. Jesus' forgiveness of sins. While it's certainly true Jesus forgives us, is it different than saying to accept Jesus and God's forgiveness of sins? As in the Godhead, all of them forgiving us. Is there a difference? Why that? Why Jesus' forgiveness and not the Holy Spirit's or the Father's forgiveness? Because the idea of his forgiveness, Jesus' forgiveness, fits better with the false legal penal view of things. That Jesus forgives and then takes the forgiveness and presents it to his Father, his merits to persuade the Father to forgive. This is a typical kind of subtle thing. But let me ask you this. Jesus forgives us to be sure, but on whose agenda was Jesus? In other words, whose mission was Jesus fulfilling? The Father's. Father's. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. Jesus said he will not pray to the Father because the Father himself loves us. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For unto us a son is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor. And who's the the counselor? The Holy Spirit. Everlasting 
Father, Prince of Peace. Peace. Wow, we have the whole Godhead in this son. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Do we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all forgive us? And did their forgiveness come before or after Christ's death? It's always been. I didn't hear a clear answer there. His death was an evidence of the forgiveness. Uh Do you know in the typical penal view, it's not until his death was necessary to forgive. No, the forgiveness came, you were right, the forgiveness came first. If the forgiveness came first, then what was the purpose of Christ's death, if not for our forgiveness? To reveal the Father. Okay, to reveal the Father. Other thoughts? To restore. To restore? To restore what? Us to the image. Oh, I love that, to restore us to the image of God. Demonstrate the uh, full character of Satan and effects of what sin had onto this world. And we have some scripture for each one of these. Hebrews 2.14. By his death, he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Destroying his power. What's the devil's power? Lies. Lies. And so he reveals the truth, as some of you said, reveal the truth about God, reveal the truth about the devil, exposing him for who he is, destroying his power to deceive. Okay, so it's one of the things by his death he did. First Timothy 1, 9 and 10, by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Thus he's destroyed sin, sinfulness, the condition, the carnal nature, which is deviant from God's design. We're dead in trespass and sin. Okay? And thus he destroys that. And then it says in 1 John 3.8 that he destroys the devil's work. By his death he destroys the devil's work. What has the devil been working to achieve that Christ destroyed at his death? Misrepresent the character of God. Part of that's true because it says in John 17, 3, Jesus in his prayer saying, um, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. Okay, that's true. But he has been working to efface the image of God in man and to put Satan's image where God should be. And in Christ, the image of God is fully restored. He destroys that work. Thus, he restores perfection into the species human in his life, death, and resurrection. He becomes the second Adam, the new head of the human race, perfected by Jesus Christ. So what is the match? So with that in mind, let's let's use this language. The Holy Spirit possesses a matchless power to make us overcomers. What is the matchless power of the Holy Spirit, the power that is not matched by any other power? matchless power. It's not matched by any other power. Are we speaking physical power? The Holy Spirit is the spirit that hovered upon the waters at creation. He is the, has the whole, all the creative power of the Godhead. Are we, are we talking physical power in an infinite scale? Is that what the lesson is referring to? Well, let me ask you this. What is the matchless power of the Holy Spirit working in us to accomplish? Restoration. Character transformation, healing of hearts and minds, removal of sinfulness and selfishness and fear, and restoration of purity and holiness and love. Can that outcome be accomplished by physical might and power? Okay. So then, what's the power? This matchless power that has that effect. This is the power of law. God gave a written law at Sinai and thundered with power. Is this the power? Well, let me read you out of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is out of the NIV. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do. We're talking about power. Paul says the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order, in order that what? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. What does this mean? How was the law powerless? What did Christ do and how was the Holy Spirit involved? How do you understand these words? What does it mean? We well, read the words, but hearing the words doesn't really do anything if you don't understand the meaning. What's it mean? The MRI has the power to show you what's wrong, but it doesn't have the power to heal you. Oh, I like that. Okay, so, so the laws working like a diagnostic instrument can reveal the problem, but it can't fix the problem. This is uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4, out of the remedy. Therefore, those who trust in Christ Jesus are no longer destined to die. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of love has cleansed and healed them from the law of selfishness and death. The written law was powerless to restore trust as it could merely diagnose the infection of distrust and selfishness pervading us all. God accomplished this restoration of his character of love in humans by sending his own son in human flesh to eradicate selfishness from humanity, reveal the truth about God, expose the lies of Satan, and reveal what happens when the infection of sin is not cured. And so he condemned the infection of selfishness as the destroying element in sinful humanity in order that the law of love, the principle upon which life is based, might be fully restored in us who no longer live according to the selfish desires but in harmony with the spirit of love and truth. Do you think the remedy captures the meaning? I mean, that's what's happening. It's actual real-life restoration. Yeah, the law could not do this. Only Christ could do this. Yeah. Verse 2, in the good news, says, For the law of the Spirit, which brings us life in union with Christ Jesus. We often have this confusion or this struggle with the in Christ or the Spirit is living in us or whatever, but we're in union with. And what is the law of the Spirit? Truth. This is the law of the Spirit. Truth. Truth and love. The spirit of truth and love. So the law of God is the law of truth and the law of love. Now, how is that law? Is that, a, is that a, simply an emotion, a compassion? No, it's design protocol, how things are actually built. So the matchless power is the matchless power of the spirit of truth combined with love. This is the power. Is there scripture to support this? This conclusion? Besides the scriptures that say the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit of love. Other scriptures. Zechariah 4. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. Jesus said you will know the truth, truth and the truth will... Hmm. Did Jesus say you will claim the blood payment to your account and be legally declared righteous? He didn't say that. Never said it. You will know the truth... The truth will set you free. What is the greatest commandment from Jesus? To love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything hangs on these. So how do love and truth function? Do love and truth change the laws of health, the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics? Do they change those? Do love and truth coerce? 
Do love and truth force their way? Why not? What happens if someone tries to force another to believe anything? To force them to believe. What happens? Man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Okay. And rebellion is what gets fostered. One of two things will happen. One is rebellion. If someone tries to force you to believe against your will, the natural inclination is to rebel against that coercive pressure. And if rebellion doesn't result in restoration of individuality, autonomy, and freedom, and one stays in that situation under that threat and that coercive pressure, what happens over time? Anybody know? Yes. They surrender. They surrender what? Their individuality, their their identity, their thinking. They become empty shadows and shells of others. They lose their ability to think for themselves. This is a quote out of Isaiah 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. I will tell you, this this quote alone, if you just actually think it through, apply it, there's so many things taught by theology professors and pastors that are immediately eliminated from Christianity. If we actually teach that compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. We're asking the question about, what is this matchless power? Here, this writer says, it's truth and love, which is what we've concluded from looking at the scripture. Now, how are truth and love prevailing? Yes. Before we ask the question, I'd like to mention that it seems like one of the reasons that we have such a difficulty with accepting that power is not God's way is there's not, he demonstrates that in the, the sequence of life, of Earth's history, but he doesn't come out and say, you know, it's not with power. But he did, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power. He did come out and say it, and he said it in many places through history. But, but then he says it is how the Spirit works, and many people feel that the Spirit is a power that forces our will. Yeah, they may feel that, but that's not what's taught. And you look at the life of Christ, he actually... So he has come out and said it. That's demonstrated, but it's not stated. It doesn't say that... that I don't find anywhere in the Scripture that says the Spirit is not power. It, it, there is power. We, we've never said that spirit is not, but we're actually defining what is the power. Okay, so you, you've kind of confused us when you've used oh, sorry. the word. Sorry, I used the wrong word. Okay, force, coercion, right? Coercion. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't state that the spirit is not coercion. It, it's demonstrated throughout Scripture, without a doubt, but it doesn't state that. And so, where there's lack of a direct statement, we often things that are passed. So we're about to discover why what you just said is true. Because we're asking the question, how does truth and love function? He's this spirit of truth and love. How does it function? And answering this answers your question as to why it's not explicitly stated. So how do they function? Do truth and love require, if they're to be powerful in an individual's life, do they require the choice, the willful involvement of the individual sentient being in order for truth and love to have transforming power? Yes. Get your mind around that. Why is it not stated? 
For the same reason, if you're taking math classes and you have problems in your book, you aren't given every answer. If you're given every answer, you never work a problem, you never develop, you never grow. In order for you to assimilate and grow and mature, you have to actually study and think and reason and comprehend and choose the truth. Truth doesn't have an impact on a person unless they think, reason, choose to internalize and apply. Apply. For love to have an impact, the person has to respond to it and share it with others. Tim? Did, yes. Bear with me on this. It's a little bit of a lengthy thing, but it's Psalm 107, I think, is the, the perfect example of what we're talking here. It talks about four different ways we go wrong, and at what point does God help us, and how does he help us differently for different issues that we have? Because we're looking at the actual functionality of the Holy Spirit in the life. Um, Starting with 107, verse. Um, let's start with verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness and deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains, for they had rebelled against the word of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and deepest gloom. He broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and its wonderful deeds for men for... He breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through the rebellious ways. They suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of the works of with songs of joy. Others went out on the sea in ships. This is the last one. They were merchants on mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord and his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it drew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Describe what the process is that, that is going on there. For me, that represents four different ways that we can go wrong. We can be ignorant. We can be rebellious. We can be just making terrible choices. We can be addicted. For example, the chains. We can be so busy. We can be imbalanced, up, down, up, down. For each problem, each way we go wrong, God um, lets us experience that and then waits for us to ask him. We then open our heart to his solution. And to me, this shows four different solutions he has to our four different issues. He feeds us, waters us, heals us, breaks the chains like of addiction and so on. Um, calms the imbalances in our lives, the storms and so on, brings us to where we desire to go, but we're unable to do it ourselves. 
So in that respect, it shows that we are we go astray in multiple ways. God has answers, but he waits until we ask for the answers and open ourselves to his answers. And then he has this specific answer for your specific problem. And that's the Holy Spirit divining what your particular needs are and then waiting till you open your heart to that. And he has the ability to break your addictions, to heal you, to feed water, etc., calm you, and, and guide you to your desired so if you actually look at a larger landscape than just the four specifics, what you read was design law in, in action. We have freedom to make choices. We deviate from God's design. Consequences come that cause us to suffer. In our suffering, if we turn back to the designer, the designer, for those who turn to him and allow him, will heal and restore us and put us back in harmony with design, which takes away our suffering. And it doesn't matter which avenue specifically that we decide to deviate from his design on, if we do, if we believe lies and, and, and end up in mental turmoil, then the truth will set us free. If we talk about physical things, addiction, and end up in, then the, uh, the, the living in harmony with health laws set us free. And so God is the source that leads us back to how reality functions as he's constructed it, and any deviation from the design is harmful. And that shows you four pathways to do that, but the, notice how God functions. He's constantly the God of truth and love, letting us experience the consequence of our choice and hopefully learn from that and turn back to him for healing. So this is very, very, very impactful. Back to the question here. For truth to have an impact on a person, and this is what I really want you to see, the power of truth and love, how it actually works in your life. It is not simply enough to hear the truth. You have to actually understand it, comprehend it, and choose it. You have to choose the truth. And same thing with love. What happens in the mind, character, heart, soul of a person who values and pursues truth and experiences and shares love? What happens to them? By their study, by their accepting, by their embracing, by their valuing, by their sharing, they're being transformed in that process. This is why one of the reasons God's method is that we are, are his lights and witnesses. Not only do we get the benefit of uh, the privilege of sharing, but we get the benefit of growing in that exercise. Which is desirable. The law of work. Now, that's correct. Now, is any sinner the source of truth or love? No, we are not the source. I want to be very clear. While it is true that our active participation is required for our assimilation in truth and love, for us to assimilate and grow, we are not the source. So, no active participation from us creates truth and love. We are not the source. This only comes from God. So, we are not saving ourselves. Um, but this is God's method for us to participate with him. Only by voluntary participation can God transform an individual and have their individuality retained. If he uses his power to rewrite your motives, your desires, your heart, without your willful choice to participate, you as an individual get erased and a new identity gets placed there. This is the only way. This is God's mechanism. Yes. Can you relate what we're saying here to the, uh, say, the Muslim world, where they seem to be, you know, compelled? It doesn't matter. Uh, actually, it's not Muslim. It's any other system of thinking or belief, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Buddhist, whether it's Christian science, whether it's Mormon, whether it's Adventist. It doesn't really matter. If you use a method in which you're indoctrinated with some type of course of threat, believe or else, then it's damaging. Let me read to you, in fact, 
right on cue here. This is a, a, uh, from Second uh, Testimonies 129, Ellen White writing to some believers in her day. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. There is great danger of many in, and there's a little blank there, we don't know exactly where, we might say in Chattanooga. Okay? They have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment. Powerful words, unprejudiced, unbiased judgment. Now there's open to look and evaluate the evidence for what it is rather than already knowing the answer is where you get to the book. Questions and subjects that are new and are ever liable to arise. In other words, they are not exercising their ability to think and reason as Hebrews 5.14 describes the mature. The mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. They practice thinking things out. That's the mature. This is design law. If you don't use it, you will lose it. If you don't use your ability to think and reason, you will lose your ability to think and reason. So keep on with the quote. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent... That is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. I can tell you in our experience in this community, this has happened by lots of people. Somebody in authority doesn't agree, therefore they won't even think for themselves. My pastor said, my, my elder said, my brother said, I'm, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to investigate. No, I don't want to read that. Okay, Of no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy. Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy she's referring to here? Satan. Satan is the enemy. How are they yielding in this description? How are they yielding? Are they yielding by going out and, and getting addicted to drugs, by visiting prostitutes, by, by denying the name of Jesus? I mean, how are they yielding here to Satan? intellect. Surrendering their thinking to others. This is perfect. How many do you? How many times do you hear about the sin of not thinking? <laughs> of not thinking. <laughs> Seriously, you never hear it. Okay, but if you understand how sin works, father of lies, the truth sets you free. Every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. If you aren't willing to think, and you're uh, habituated in distortions and lies, and you're not willing to come, let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet. If you're not going to reason with God and, and look at the evidence, you can't get out of the trap. So keeping on with the quote, by long yielding to the enemy, and will always be, now what are they doing here? They're, they're allowing others who, who have an opinion to form their thoughts for them. Remember, they wait to see what others will think. Long yielding to the enemy. They will always be as sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, and acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those whom they think are right. Well, we see that in people that listen to their pastors on Sabbath, and they don't go home and study and read for themselves. They think that they're being fed the truth because they haven't searched for the truth themselves. So, that's, so what is happening to these people's individuality is being described here? It's being lost. Is this an infliction from a powerful potentate? No. I've told you to study. You haven't studied. Therefore, I'm going to erase your individuality. <laughs> you have not obeyed as I've told you to obey. Is that what's happening? 
What causes it to happen? Why does their individuality erode? Right. Because you allow your minds to be controlled by... What would prevent their individuality from eroding? Studying and making choices for themselves. Thinking for themselves and exercising their capacity to embrace truth and practice love. You know what's really scary about this is that the Bible speaks about the sin against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we're going to come to that too. We're going to come to that too. In fact, what is the agency of the Godhead involved in bringing truth and love? The Holy Spirit. Then what agency is resisted if we refuse to think for ourselves and process the truth and love others? What, what agency is resisted? The Holy Spirit. This is, is this grieving the Holy Spirit? Okay, continuing on with the quote. I'm just putting a little, little discussion with these pertinent points, but here's the same quote. Very next sentence. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. That's profound, guys. That's profound. Wait, wait. Aren't I safe? I, I've, I've read the 28 fundamentals. I've gone to the pastor. I've asked him these very difficult theological questions. I, I waited for the general conference committee to rule. I followed the rulings of the hierarchy of the church. I'm, I'm doing what they say. I'm practicing all the things the church said I'm supposed to do. I claim the blood payment. I claim the blood payment. I, I, I go to church on the right day. I get my feet washed before I partake of communion. I, I, I've been baptized in the right way. I'm following everything. I believe all the 28. I can even answer the right questions in the Bible quiz. Why do you believe them, though? Well, because the pastor said so. Because the, the church has voted in committee. That's why. You all fail of everlasting life. Why? Yes. For me growing up, the thing that really made me struggle on that point personally was the text that talks, and this comes down to how do we interpret Scripture, and it's got to be from our point of reference that we do, but the Scripture that talks about if it were the very elect being deceived, if possible, and I know people who, you know, seem to think they're the smartest people around, but I think most of us know we're not. <laughs> you know, we're not all knowing. And so I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, if the smartest person I know could be deceived, how do I know if I'm, you know? By coming to understand, number one, God for yourself, how his reality actually works, and you have a real experience. To start, they have no experience for themselves. You have your own experience with the truth. Yes, but what was modeled and is modeled in most church environments is not think. That's right. It's follow. That's correct. That's what we're exposing here. So continuing on with this quote, they will all fail of everlasting life, semicolon. They will be unable to cope with the parables of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual, therefore spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which would relate to the kingdom of God. What are they not wise in? Design law, guys. How the creator constructs his reality to work. Law of love, law of liberty, law of truth, laws of exertion. They do not understand God's character, methods, and the way he operates. They're not wise in the things of the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old 
are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Yes. I have found that some of the people I've talked with about this, part of the reason they're afraid to come to the other side, so to speak, is because they don't, they're afraid they're being deceived. And, you know, even the elect will be deceived. And it makes me smile because when I first came to your one of your Bible studies, it was, well, probably four years ago, last November, three or four years ago. And something you said, I, I don't even remember what it was about. I think it was in the sanctuary. but And I don't remember a bit about the sermon, but... All of a sudden, it was like I had permission to believe all these things that I'd been hiding in my heart about God and how wonderful he was because that's not what I was taught. So I didn't ever really relax and go, yeah, that is who God is, until after I heard this first sermon. And then then I was afraid that I was going to go off on you know another tangent because I had done that in the past. So I had my brother listened to this very same thing and he was very impressed and he's a pastor and so in a way I was still needing somebody else to tell me that it was okay but I couldn't deny that what I was hearing was truth and it was comforting to know that someone else that I trusted their wisdom also confirmed that but so I think it's it's helpful you know, where two or more are gathered kind of thing. In other words, I'm not going way off here on my own. And so then I started coming back and listening and growing. And, and I just, I love the message. I love God. And he's the most loving, forgiving Thank you. father. I mean, he's just amazing. Now, you've raised a wonderful point, And I want to, want, to, want to validate the point you've raised. Is studying together with other people, searching for truth, the same thing, and, and going to somebody and saying, this is an idea, what do you think? I'd like your perspective on it. What, 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 you know, and having somebody else process it over and give you their perspective. Is that the same thing as surrendering your thinking to others? It is not. And in fact, it's very healthy that we two or three gather together and that we do want to hear other people's perspectives and ideas. That's how we actually help clarify and remove some of the dross in our own thinking. Like at the beginning of class today, I had somebody give me a perspective that I, I, I didn't even question because I'd always thought that's the way it was. And you know what? I went back and then their perspective caused me to go back and check the sources. And you know what? They were right. So I've adjusted that way. That's what we do for each other if we're willing to go back and check the sources for ourselves. Yes. Well, I think coming to the understanding that truth is ever-expanding. I mean, those of us that grew up this way and were steeped in this theology, we're told we have the truth. Which means if I hear something else that contradicts that, that can't be true because I already had it. So, which turned out to be not. So, so I really want to talk about, so we functionally, how truth and love work. I want us to understand this today and how the devil cheats us from it with this systems of theology. So, a couple comments over here. Yeah, I come into the church probably about 20 years ago. And when I came in, I was told a lot of doctrinal things. I didn't let my kids play sports. I didn't let them listen to a certain kind of music. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. They had to follow all the rules because that's what I was being taught. All because I accepted the Sabbath and it was something really new to me. I loved it. So my poor kids grew up, we... They went to school up in Michigan and everything. They couldn't do anything because I had certain people whispering in my ear, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. 
And, and I think this is going to segue nicely into the next point I'm going to make, how the devil takes, takes truth and then cheats good-hearted people out of the actual experience of transformation that the truth and love would bring, and you got cheated for a while. So when I come to this class, Zoe's daughter, Tamara, I had seen her, her name on a book that was given to me. So that's what made me investigate your class. When I came in here, I came in with a shield up. You weren't going to change what I, was, I firmly believed that everybody else told me. And I didn't. No, you didn't. The Holy Spirit didn't. Thank you. Tell you what. I want to affirm that I didn't. Thank My you. My love has changed. What I think love is, or what I thought love is, and what I know it is today, totally changed my life. Perfect. Beautiful. So this is the critical thing that we have to do. We have to engage our own individuality, our own wills to think for ourselves, to weigh the evidences, not engage our wills to choose to claim a legal payment to a record book in heaven. That doesn't change people. You actually have to comprehend and think for yourself, assimilate and apply the truth as it is re- revealed to you and you comprehend it to your life. And by making such choices, we participate in God's kingdom. This is how we participate. God's universe, God's methods. Satan works to replace this real-life experience with God with false legal theologies in which we claim legal payments but don't practice God's methods. And instead, the Sabbath, which if you're going to have a real Sabbath experience, it must be a delight. You see, parents can, ta- can, can coerce their kids into eating spinach or broccoli or kale. But can you make your kids enjoy it? You see, many Adventists come to the Sabbath and they keep the Sabbath out of a sense of obligation and fear that there's an angel now watching. And before in your ignorance, it was all wink, wink, wink. You can do anything you want. Wink, wink, wink. I wish I never knew. I could do everything. Now that I've got the knowledge and the truth, now there's an angel keeping her. The winks are gone. I got a, a, you know what? Sabbath ended 37 seconds ago and you didn't get your bath done yet. Or you, you're still at the gas station because the pump is slow and, and you didn't get all that, that and, you, and you didn't finish paying for your gas in the Sabbath 37 seconds ago. And we're supposed to guard the edge of the Sabbath and that was a recording and you're going to be punished for that. Okay, it's no longer a joy. It's, a, it's the most oppressive, imprisoning, enslaving day that takes liberty and freedom from you. And this is a legal system of religion, not design law. And then you are a Pharisee of Pharisees who are burdened and restricted and there's no freedom in Christ. It, now, I'm not, I'm not in any way arguing against the truth of the Sabbath. I'm arguing how the truth of the Sabbath gets stolen from us when we have a legal religion. A legalistic That's correct. A legalistic keeping is in keeping. It has to be a joy. It's something you do for, for delight. Okay? And you can look at this in a relationship. If in a relationship you love your spouse, and because you love your spouse, you love to maybe sometimes cook breakfast for them or, or give them a card or, or maybe you just wash their car for them. And you do these things out of love because you like to, to, to show your care and concern for them. Would it be different, though, if your spouse gave you a list that you had to complete? Now, you must wash my car today. You must cook me breakfast tomorrow. You must do this. You must do that. And every day there's these lists coming that you have to oblige them to do. Is, is that the same thing or is it different now? See, when, when we approach God with a list of to-dos that we have to do it or else, it destroys and crushes love out of the heart. It is supposed to be that we do this because we love him and appreciate him and we want to. That's why, yes. They tell you at seminars and all that, don't take what I say, go and study it for yourself. But then when you do go and study it for yourself or go somewhere else, they, 
they don't like that. That's right. So we were... Yes. So let's go on to the next paragraph, and we're now into the second paragraph in Sabbath's lesson. Okay. At the same time, and, and there's a whole bunch of really meaty stuff I really want to get to today, so I'm, I might run over today a little bit. I try not to, but I think we might run over today because some really important stuff in today's lesson. At the same time, the powerful and mighty Holy Spirit can be resisted by feeble sinners. He does not force himself upon anyone. And I think we'll move through that very quickly. We all agree the Holy Spirit does not force himself. Um, what mechanism, though, does Satan use to get people to resist the Holy Spirit? Lies, primarily. Uh, not the obvious ones that there's no God and we all evolve from slime. That's the obvious lie. It's the more subtle lies, like God is severe and gets angry if we ask questions. If you have faith, you don't ask questions. Faith just believes. Okay? God's law is imposed and he keeps track of sins and he must punish you by. God is a source of inflicted punishment we need to be protected from. Um, we have somebody standing between us as our advocate to plead his blood on our behalf. Sin is bad deeds uh, that need legal pardon. Jesus died to pay the penalty so we don't have to. These theologies are much more corrupting and corrosive in many ways than the idea that there's no God. And in fact, these theologies led to the entire rebellion against Christianity and the rejection of the idea of God at all because it's inconsistent with how reality works. Reality works on design law. This stuff is all arbitrary. So all such constructs divert people away from participating in God's reality, in God's kingdom, and keep them trapped in legal regimens that have a form of godliness but no power. Second, next, the next paragraph, now we're really moving, we're in the third paragraph. Okay. Sin is very alluring, very appealing, yet it is highly deceptive and leads to death. It is diametrically opposed to God and his pure holiness and goodness. Reflecting the divine holiness, the Holy Spirit is opposed to sin in every form, and he is grieved when we sin and are unwilling to give it up. As powerful as the Holy Spirit is, his positive impact can be quenched, and we can resist him when we continue in our sinful living. The Gospels even tell us that there is one sin that cannot be forgiven, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, what... What is the suggesting the Holy Spirit is, the, the lesson is suggesting that the devil gets us to do that, that grieves the spirit in this paragraph? To sin. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Or, yeah, actions. Sinful behavior. And certainly, if we engage in sinful behavior, that is destructive to us and it does grieve the Holy Spirit. There's no question. We're not going to d- deny that. Of course, that's true. But are there other mechanisms that the devil gets us? How about the devil gets us to sear the conscience and warp the character and resist the spirit? By our religion. Can he do that? Not by rebellious living in the construct of wild living, but in unloving living by keeping the rules. Can, can the Holy Spirit get us to do that? I mean, not the Holy Spirit. Can the devil get us to resist the Holy Spirit by doing that? The leaders in Jesus' day, running home to keep the Sabbath after they'd had Jesus crucified, totally missing, uh, even though they studied the scriptures and, you know, had all the details down, they totally missed the love. Have you ever been called by a church board or pastor to the church board and told that you must submit to church authority and stop teaching what you're teaching? <laughs> have you? I have. <laughs> what would you do if you were instructed by your pastor and the elders and the church board that you must cease and desist what you're teaching? Did the church authority try to silence Jesus? Did church authority try to silence the apostles? Did church authority try to silence the reformers? 
Did Adventist Church Authority try to silence Ellen White? Yes, it did. Did God in heaven try to silence Satan, Lucifer? No, he did not. Did Jesus try to silence his critics on earth? No, he did not. I'm pointing out a complete difference and distinct method of operating here, people. I want you to see it. So that when you see religious authorities using power of their office to try and silence questions and and other perspectives, this is not what God did. He didn't do it in heaven and he hasn't done it on earth. And you can be sure, think of this through, just think just logically with me. If you possess all truth, all truth, when it's comprehended, seen and understood, always vindicates you and leads people to you, and, and or you're on the other side with no truth, and if truth is seen, you'll be exposed as a liar and a fraud, which one of those positions wants people to not ask questions and not think? Okay? So this idea that we don't question, we don't ask, it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit of truth. He wants investigation. He wants thinking. He wants honest exploration of the truth because all truth will lead back to him. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone that comes to him, uh, comes to the Father comes through him because he is that light that lightens all men. But if you don't have truth, you want to be religious and pious. We take that on faith. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't ask questions here. Shut down thinking because then we shut down the avenue for the spirit to work. Yes? Stop listing of all places at the county clerk's office. Mm-hmm. Nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Oh, I love that. ML King. Yeah, that's good. That's right. All right, so in the paragraph we read earlier about uh, from Desire of Ages where prevailing power is truth and love, remember that paragraph? This is the very next paragraph after she said that God won't use coercive power, that truth and love are the prevailing power. The very next paragraph. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop his principles, which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. What is being described in that paragraph? What method is God using? What is the purpose of using such a method? To place things on an eternal basis of security. An eternal basis of security. Why then did God want Satan's method seen and understood? What makes things eternal basis of security? Angels with flaming swords on every corner to keep us safe with metal detectors in heaven? We're so solemnly convinced that nothing could change our mind. Yes, well, the impact of truth on intelligent beings where they're fully persuaded in their own mind. What kind of power is God wielding to put things on an eternal basis of security? He's wielding the power of truth presented in love, leaving his creatures free. This is the power. In Revelation, it's mentioned as the sword coming out of his mouth. That's correct. People who think in, in violent ways think that he's coming, you know, to slash and dash where the Bible is actually talking about the truth coming out of his mouth is the thing that brings judgment and punishment. Second paragraph in the Sunday's lesson says, as powerful as God is, he does not force himself upon our free will. He respects our choices. What do you call it when somebody forces themselves upon another? Rape. Rape. So we're correct. God is not a rapist. He does not force himself This is absolutely true, absolutely correct. Validate the lesson on that. However, are there doctrines in Christianity that functionally have God forcing himself? There's lots of them. 
God being the source of inflicted pain and punishment, the entire legal accounting system for our sins. God is required to sit in judgment and then inflict proper punishments upon people who don't obey. Um, the traditional views of hell. Um, God is the source of inflicting sickness on people today in this world who don't obey him. Um, these types of things put God in the role of forcing and coercing. And they incite fear. Third paragraph says, while everyone is responsible for their own decisions, we also have a corporate responsibility. We should encourage one another to be faithful, to obey God's word, and to stay close to Jesus. And it references um, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 about not uh, forsaking meeting together and so forth. Is there a different, do we have a different responsibility corporately than we do individually? Or is our responsibility always over what we do in governance of ourselves in relationship to whomever we're dealing with, whether in church, whether in community, whether in family, we must conduct ourselves and govern ourselves in harmony with God's principles for our life. Okay? I think it's for lack of that that we have so many people that uh, abandon the whole concept of God. If that's the way God makes you behave, if that's the way you behave when you believe God, then I can't believe in that. Are we responsible for the corporation rejecting the truth about God? Was Jesus responsible for the fact the Jewish nation rejected his message in him? Is it his fault? He just—it was just a little more effective. If he'd gone to uh, good, you know, apologetics and speaking classes, he could have potentially persuaded them. One more. If he'd gone to the seminaries they had. No, he was not responsible for their rejection. He presented the truth in the most powerful and effective ways possible. There was no way more, more effective than the way he did it. Yes? Also implied in that discussion about attending church, we don't attend church for ourselves. We go to church for others. Now, the lesson suggests, along these lines, that we should not stop associating together. But Christ gave a little different counsel. In Matthew... 10, verse 5 through 14, and I will read part of it. It says, do not, uh, do not go, telling his disciples, instructions to his disciples, do not go among the Gentiles or enter a town of the Samaritans. Get, uh, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. First, is he going to the world or is he going to the church of his day? The church of his day. He's going to Israel. As you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This is what Wendell was saying. We are going to minister. We are going to give. We're going to bless. We have a message. We can, we're going to help others. Then you've jumped down to verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet and leave that home or town. No, we should not stop associating with these people. Are there times when we should stop associating? He sent them to the church of his day, and he said if they reject you and reject the truth, shake the dust off your feet and move on to people who will accept. There's many out there who will. Monday's lesson. You know, I've had this happen to me. I remember when I was in the military and I was going to a military chapel that had Adventist services on base in a military chapel on Saturday mornings, Sabbath mornings for the Adventists. And there was only about 40 of us, 35 of us that came. Um, and some of them were from the local community. And in fact, um, it, was, it was run by a civilian from the local community would organize to have the event and got permission from the, uh, the chief of chaplains from the, from the base. And I remember I came in and started sharing some of these perspectives. I remember they, had a, uh, they didn't have anybody in that group of 30 people that were Adventists who could play the organ or the piano. And so they 
had a, a, a Baptist woman who was a volunteer who would come in and play so they could have some song service during the thing each week. And she would sit in on the, on the Sabbath school class and the study. And I remember one of the civilian organizers who was, who was teaching the class, that was the, 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 the discussion on Matthew where he talked about, um, now, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And this uh, Adventist looked to this Baptist who was volunteering her time with no pay to come play this music and said, the Sabbath has not been done away with and Sunday is the mark of the beast. And if you go to church on Sunday, you're going to get the mark of the beast. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So I intervened. (laughs) (laughs) And I talked about the law of love and about how this woman was giving of her time and freely you have given, freely you received. And if you break the law on one point, you break. And And I actually, the Sabbath is really just a symbol of this And I was told that I was of the devil and I was not welcome there anymore. I was a major, active duty, on a military base, in a military chapel. They were civilians from the community. And I was told I was not welcome there anymore because I had the devil. (laughs) Way to dust your feet. Yep. So anyway, true story. What? Frank has its privilege. Yeah. True story. True story. Sad story. But it, it, it goes to the problem. Why would they say that to me? Why would they say this to this woman? They're operating level four and below, guys. Remember the seven levels of moral decision making? They're in, at the highest law and order. And the rules say, if you break the rules, then you must be punished, you see? And, uh, we, and we don't want you to be punished, but God's just enough to punish you. And we love you so much, we're going to warn you that you're going to get the mark and you're going to be punished. So don't do it. Come to, get, get the right rules. Okay? This is very childish thinking. You ever play games with kids? Play games with kids? At elementary age kids, it's all about the rules. And they're very, very vigilant to watch for rule breaking. And they become tattletales. And they tattle all the time when somebody breaking the rules. And it's not about, it's not about, um, uh, uh, the experience with your friends. It's about the rule keeping and doing it right and winning and, and, and cheating and all this kind of stuff, right? But when you get older, like, so you're out there, whatever, you're playing a little game on the ball field with them, whatever. But when you were your parent and when you were the small child, it's like, we don't care about the rules. We're just having fun. Hit the ball. Catch it. We don't care. Run to first base. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't quite catch you. I can't quite catch you. Yeah, you're safe. You know, we're not playing by the rules anymore, right? The rules don't matter. We're at level five. At least we're loving other people. We're building a relationship. We surpass the rules. Okay? But this is how church is for a lot of people. They're level four and below, and it's all about the rules, and they're tattletales, and they're spies, and they look at each other, and they report on each other. We call it church discipline. So the Holy Spirit talks about in Monday's lesson that the Holy Spirit hates sin. And why does the Holy Spirit hate sin? Because it personally offends God, because it breaks his rules and shows him disrespect, which is written widely in Christianity. He's offended. How? He's holy. He's righteous. Your sin offends his personability. It just, it just it makes him upset. It offends him because you don't show him respect. We are damaged by sin and estrangement from God. Or because sin always deviates from his design for your life and health and damages you. Now, if you had a child that you raised not to smoke cigarettes, we'll just say something simple, cigarettes, okay? And your child at 15 or 16 is you caught smoking cigarettes back behind the barn. You broke my rules. How dare you not show me the respect I deserve? You're going to get punished. Because is, is, is it breaking your rules that offend you? Or is it that they're hurting themselves that got you so upset? See? This is the real problem. This is the same thing with sin. And you, why did you even have the rule? 
to protect somebody who didn't have maturity to protect themselves. This is why God has rules. I'm going to skip a quote from Ellen White that has that uh, described. Oh, talking about how our choices change ourselves. There's a quote where she talks about we're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for the sin. Every sin acts, reacts upon the sinner, makes a change in him, makes it more easy for him to sin again, and so forth. And, 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 th- and then we resist truth as it comes. Remember this quote? It's in here. I don't have time to go through the science. I have a whole bunch of science in here about how your brain changes with addictions that if somebody addicts you, if you take an addictive substance like morphine yourself or somebody does it to you through IV, your reward pathways and your motor pathways will show the same physical changes. The details are in the notes. But your orbital cortex, where you have the conviction of wrongdoing, where your conscience is, it will only show changes of a negative nature if you choose to administer it to yourself. If somebody physically addicts you through an IV that you never choose to participate in, you will get those chemical changes so you are physically tolerant and you will go through withdrawal. But your orbital cortex doesn't show any negative change. The only way your orbital cortex changes is if you choose to do that. And the orbital cortex is where you have your conscience, meaning that somebody can physically addict you, but they can't damage your conscience. You, can, you have to choose to damage your conscience. And there's neurobiology that shows this. It's in the notes. We don't have time to go through those details. I thought you might have enjoyed those. Um, There was a couple other points I wanted to give. See if I can find those real quick. Ah, about quenching the Holy Spirit versus grieving the Holy Spirit. I think we understand grief and grieving the Holy Spirit. Yes, it saddens the Holy Spirit when we sin, and we damage the faculties that respond to love and truth. Thus, it becomes harder to be like taking hot irons and burning out your eyes. Visual stimulation will have no impact on you anymore. No books, no billboards, no television uh, images. Visual stimulation can't reach you if you burn out your eyes. Okay? If you sear your conscience to beyond a certain point, then the spirit of truth and love has no impact and you can't be reached. This is grieve and it saddens the Holy Spirit. In his heart, he's grieved and you are severing that tie with the Holy Spirit. This is what that means. That's the grieving. The quenching, though, I want to suggest quenching means something else. Grieving, I think, is the personal individual separation and searing of the conscience. But I think quenching has to do with the Holy Spirit's involvement in the community and the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not the transformation of the heart of an individual, but how the Holy Spirit wants to move on individuals to impact the community. And thus we can quench the work of the Holy Spirit in the community. And how can we quench the work of the Holy Spirit in the community? By primarily belief and teaching of lies about God. Particularly the one that has quenched the Holy Spirit the most in history, in my view, is penal substitution theology. This idea has quenched the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, what else will quench it? Selfishness, discord, arguments, resentment, bitterness, believing lies, writing papers. Yes. We've talked in here before about how when we feed something, it grows. When we, when we don't feed something, it, it dies. The same word for quench that we are using for quench the spirit is also used in the parable of the ten virgins. When the foolish virgins fire was going out, it was being quenched. It's the same word. They were not feeding. They were not partaking of the spirit. Their fire was going out. It was being quenched. And so how do you quench truth? With lies. And how do you quench love? With selfishness. Choosing selfishness and lies will quench truth and love. 
Isn't it true? Yeah, and that's how the Holy Spirit does that. Yeah. Okay, I mean, not the Holy Spirit. The Satan does that to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, I, uh, real fast, I'm just going to close with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not simply saying, I don't believe in the Trinity. There are many people who don't believe in the Trinity that haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You understand that, right? I think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to despise the character, methods, and principles of the Holy Spirit. So a person who finds the spirit of truth and love reprehensible, such that they think honesty, fidelity, truthfulness are weak and despicable, and love for others is cheap sentiment, when they reject such principles and motives, yet claim to believe in God and the blood payment of Jesus, this is not good. Blasphemy against the spirit is not merely saying one doesn't believe in the Trinity. It is functional rejection of the presence of the spirit who brings the perfection of Christ wrought out, that Christ wrought out into our eternal worlds, our hearts and minds. And thus it's the persistent rejection of truth, honesty, integrity, love, fidelity, and so on. Rejecting those principles is really grieving away the Holy Spirit and blasphemy. Part of the lesson I got that I liked was when he corrects, the Holy Spirit corrects you, he does it with um, gentleness and lowliness on Thursday. That's, that is the, the movement of the Holy Spirit on the heart. Gentleness, lowliness, bringing us insight, leaving us time and space to think for ourselves, never coercing, never pressuring. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator God, the God of truth, the God of love, who has created a space, this earth, in which your intelligent beings can disagree and you have not abandoned us in our disagreement, but you have sent your Son to open the path back to provide what's necessary, the remedy to heal and restore, and your spirit is constantly working to lead us out of the darkness, the distortion, the misunderstanding, and restore in us your design, your perfect love and character of love. We pray that your spirit will be poured out into our minds, remove the distortions, and transform us to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.